This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. I'm Meenakshi from Stories of Win, and I'm very excited to be here today with Dr. Malavika Murugan, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Biology at Emory University in Georgia. Thank you so much for letting me interview you, Malavika. Thank you so much for having me here. I would like to start off by asking about your neuroscience origin story. How and when did you first become interested in studying the brain? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I feel like I kind of stumbled into neuroscience. So grew up in a traditional Indian household. And if, you're, you, know, if you grew up in a household like that, you would know that your know, Indian parents want you to either be a doctor or an engineer. Uh, I knew I didn't want to be a doctor. So I, I, I enrolled in like a... Um, an engineering uh, program and I got my bachelor's degree in biotechnology and chemical engineering. But while I was kind of doing this, um, I, you know, really didn't have an idea of what I really wanted to do. I kind of went along because that made sense. Um, and in my junior year, uh, we had to start picking electives and my uh, best friend signed up for a neuroscience elective. And I thought if I enroll in this class, I'll at least get to hang out, uh, hang out with my friends and maybe learn something along the way. And I really fell in love with neuroscience. I thought this was super fascinating. Um, you know, I've, I've kind of had this interest in animal behavior for a very, very long time, but I kind of, it felt like everything came into focus, right? Like this was now, now, now I understood why I was interested in animal behavior. And I started seeking out opportunities to pursue um, neuroscience research uh, a little bit more vigorously. And I landed this research opportunity uh, in my final year of my undergrad in a in a fly lab uh, in, in India, a fly olfaction lab. Um, and that was a, a really transformational experience for me. But that said, even when I was still applying for grad school, the expectation was that I apply for engineering programs. So I applied to like half the schools uh, for, a, for a PhD and in, in, uh, you know, sort of bioremediation engineering. And, you know, my, then my parents were like, oh, you can, if you really want to do this, you can also apply to these other programs and I applied to like neuroscience programs. Uh, it was only when I finally got into a neuroscience program that I was like, you know, I realized, oh, this is what I was meant to do. Like this, this is really what speaks to me. So it's, it, it definitely, you know, in hindsight, it looks like, oh, maybe it was a clear path, but really was not. It was a lot of like not knowing what to do and trying different things and kind of figuring out what, what really spoke to me. That is, that is very relatable uh, for me. But did you, so you wanted to do engineering and then you chose biotechnology. So were you already also interested in life sciences and, and biology uh, at that point? Yeah, both my parents are, uh, are doctors. So biology was something that we, you know, sort of spoke about all the time, right? Like every lunch conversation, every dinner conversation was something biological. So I, this is kind of, you know, I've really been interested in biology, like ever since I was a child, I just didn't know how to focus it, right? And I've always also been interested in the animal behavior. Like for, when I was young, I thought that's kind of what I wanted to be. I want to be like, you know, I wanted to be a wildlife photographer. I thought that's what, you know, but it, it turned out that I really cared about the biological processes and how behavior actually came about. And it, but it took a while to like realize that, um, you know, and it took a, a pretty meandering path to actually get to what I, I, what I truly, truly found uh, exciting. Um, and the research experience that you had during your undergrad did that pretty much um, inspire you to grow to get go to grad school? And did you know that PhD um, was was what you wanted to do next? Uh, uh, yes and no. Like I, you know, it's 
the experience was truly transformational because this the, that was the very very first time where I got to be you know hands on doing research you know in a lab all the time like so this is so that was actually I think if a fun, you know it was a really good idea so the final six uh, the final semester in my undergraduate degree you either could do an internship or you could basically go out and get a research experience right and so I opted for the latter which meant that I could be in the lab like the whole day and you know actual do actual science and um, you know see what it would wa watch what others were doing learn from that like be really exposed and truly sort of uh, immersed in the primary literature, right? Like I felt like till that in grad school, I mean, in undergrad, particularly in India, it's very textbook based. You're not reading original literature. You're not exposed to a lot of the original primary literature. And this is the very first time. And that was truly transformational. And seeing graduates with that to me, like, see, oh, you could actually do this for a living. You could actually ask interesting questions, answer them, do experiments. Um, that was uh, that was really incredible. And I worked with uh, this professor called Obeid Siddiqui. Uh, he's a very, very um, famous uh, neurogeneticist in uh, in India. He actually is sort of the the founder of the uh, uh, you know the National Center for Biological Sciences in Bangalore, and was the director of like uh, the Tata Institute for Fundamental Research in Bombay. So like two on, two premier institutions in India. I was in his lab, and the thing that was really amazing was that. Uh, he was a, you know, he was he was an emeritus professor at that time. So his his lab wasn't like going gung ho and like producing, you know, amazing papers. But he took the time to actually talk to me, like you know, would have lunch with me, talk about science, like talk about big picture questions, what it meant to be a scientist. Um, really invested in in my growth as a scientist. And I think that was. Uh, that was really, really transformational. So here is someone who, you know, uh, you've, you've, whose, whose name is like on these amazing papers, like has worked with like Nobel laureates, and he's actually sitting down and talking to me about science. And that was, uh, that was, you know, um, a really, really uh, key moment, I think, in, in, in sort of deciding to pursue, uh, pursue a PhD. Yeah. That's amazing. As an undergrad, having that kind of a mentorship totally makes a difference. Um, and that's Absolutely. really nice to hear. Uh, so, yes, so then when you applied for graduate school, you mentioned you applied both to some engineering programs and then also uh, neurobiology programs. So how did you finally choose where you wanted to go and what research questions um, that you wanted to pursue? I think, thankfully, I had been in the, in the neuroscience like lab by, for, a, for like a few months by the time that I had to make this decision. And I think that made it really easy. Because uh, by the time I had worked in the lab for you know four or five months, I was like, I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. This is like you know. So the next part was like convincing my parents that you know, yes, doing a PhD, which will not pay that much for a long time, is like the right, is the right path. And of course, doing it in a country where you know, in a different country where I didn't really have family, and sort of figuring out how all of that would work out would be was kind of the next. Like my parents were extremely supportive. They kind of like really. Um, let me figure out what I wanted to do, and you know, um, I think it's really the time in the in the research lab is what what helped me shape my decision. I think if I had I didn't have that experience, uh, I probably would have ended up taking a completely different path, uh, which probably which would have which might have been fine, but like uh, would not have led to where I was. I said, this is why I'm super passionate about getting undergrads in the lab as early as possible because I think whether you want to do this as a career or not, I think it exposes to, exposes you to a very, very different line of thinking and it really like sort of, you know, changes how you um, 
your 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 uh, interaction with science and and scientific literature i then think that's that's a transformational experience regardless of whether you want to do a phd or not um so i think for me that was the key uh, the key point um was it a traditional career path a phd in life sciences that were your friends and peers also pursuing that especially for your doctor parents was that something that they were seeing um as like a, a traditional thing that 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 people uh your time in india were also doing so i i i do think that uh i was uh part of the i mean I, I, this is this is true but i i was part of this group of friends who all ended up getting a phd uh so none of them in neuroscience like the 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 friend i took this course with uh actually ended up getting a phd in uh, biomedical engineering uh, and all of my really close friends ended up pursuing a, a phd program few of them are in the academic track still um others have sort of found other jobs but i do think that that sort of helped me in my decision right because my friends were doing this uh even though this was not a path that you know uh a lot of them not like my family has nobody in my immediate family has ever done a phd or has has wanted to pursue it uh but kind of having this sort of cohort of people who are all doing it together helped really boost my confidence it i but parents really didn't need to be convinced they were really supportive of the uh, of you know of the fact that i wanted to pursue um you know higher education whether it was a master's or a phd they were like okay we will do this and they you know they really were um all behind me but i think the more the doubt mostly stemmed from me as like i said is this what i want to do is this kind of like is this the right choice should i probably you know the 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 conflict was that a lot of my friends were getting placed and they were all you know had these higher paying jobs uh right and here i was like committing to another 6 years of you know uh studying uh, or at least that's what you know you were you know you, of course once i started and get it got into the program i understood this like this is the more complex it's kind of you're studying but it's also like a job right like it's just kind of it's just not what you think of when you're going and you think of thinking about it the same way you think about perhaps a master's degree but a phd is is so much different um right so but I, to this day i still think it's amazing that you you get paid to learn right in some ways uh it's it's so in that phase i think it's um it's it's an incredible experience i, I do think i mean there are highs and lows and, and i think anybody sort of you know uh not saying that about a phd is probably lying uh right but you do when you sort of remove from it um you can look at it at a, at a slightly different light which i feel like i can do now like you're not in the weeds anymore and you kind of see that the failures are what also make you you know like they they kind of are, are defining of who you become um so i think the the lows even though they were terrible while you're experiencing them really sort of shape uh the person that you come out as so i think i i i'm able to now look back at at both the ups and the downs more fondly than i would have like maybe a few years ago that's amazing it it basically says that go behind what your heart wants listen to what your heart wants and and absolutely yeah yeah you can come out successful okay great so going back to uh your graduate school experience um so you went to duke university um and how did you uh, did you do rotations how did you decide which lab you wanted to work in yeah no that's a great question so i had worked in a uh, in a fly larva lab right like so it was like olfaction in in, in dorsophila larvae um one thing that i really knew right away was that i really wanted to what whichever like lab i ended up in i wanted to have a emphasis on animal behavior right i what i i so i wanted to like understand something fundamental about how the brain shapes behavior so all the labs i tried to do rotations in were labs that had this and i only did two rotations actually 
um, you know, did a rotation with Rich Mooney uh, in the Songbird system, and I immediately fell in love with it. I was like, okay, this is what I do want to do for a PhD. Um, and I was like, I told Rich right away that this is I wanted to join his lab. He encouraged me to like go try, you know, different things. He said you should have a bigger picture view and then learn more skills and learn techniques and see this this is truly what you want to do before you commit. So I, I did another rotation with Goping Fong and I really enjoyed that experience. So it's a little bit more molecular uh, and looking at like, you know, um, uh, disrupting some gene. I want to say Shank 3 now, but and looking at like how, how that changed behavior. Uh, but I was convinced by then that I really had wanted to work with the Songbird system because I think it had this beautiful, beautiful like, you know, learning trajectory, like vocal learning trajectory. And it had like, uh, you know, the behavior was just amazing elegant elegant model system and 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 the tools that Rich's lab used really just was like the stuff that I found insanely you know it's like I had no experience in it at all uh, but I was like also like determined it's like that's what I want to do um, so uh, I kind of decided to go with Rich's lab and Rich you know really sort of welcomed me into the into the fold and I really really that I, I had a great time um, you know there definitely were uh, a lot of like lows and there are a lot of successes but I think I, I look back at my time in Rich's lab very very fondly I, I had um, this great group of people I worked with uh, the science was exciting the you know um, yeah just it was absolutely a fun experience yeah that sounds amazing so it seems like it was pretty clear to you um, by the end of grad school that that you wanted to go down this road um, and be in academia. Um, was, was that the case or were there challenges? Did you at any point consider alternative career choices at that point? Oh, absolutely. So when I was in Rich's lab, Rich kind of like, you know, uh, said, uh, oh, you know, here's this great project. Nobody, have you heard of this tool called Channel Redoption? It's kind of like blowing up in a big way. We should get it to work in Songbirds. And I very naively agreed. I was like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's exactly what I wanted to do. And then three years into my PhD, not a single experiment had worked, right? Like we, we were trying, we were, I'd, I'd gone in and injected. I, I, I maintained this master sheet and I actually submitted it to like as an appendix to my thesis. Um, so I counted, I had tried 40 different viral constructs, you know, uh, and before the last one, like, you know, we found out what was wrong. Um, right, so at so until like my third year, I would it was the most demoralizing thing. Rich's lab had a you know, um, Rich Rich is Rich is amazing at identifying projects, and his lab recruits like amazing talent, which means which meant that there were all my peers, like people who started after I did, would be presenting this these amazing lab meetings filled with data, and I'd be presenting tables of failed experiments. Um, you know, so it was, it was definitely, I, I definitely was not in a good space, um, right? Like I, I considered what are the, you know, not just like finding alternative careers. I was thinking about like, should I liquid grad school? Am I not made out for this? Um, and so it's, it's absolutely, you know, was, uh, and this, that was not the first time. It was not the last time, right? Like I, I feel like there are still moments where I, I you know, when, or 
when things are not going well, when you think about, oh, maybe I should be doing something else. Uh, so it definitely was not clear cut, right? Like things in hindsight, everything looks a lot more like you can if things worked out everything eventually, then you can look back at the experience and say, oh, isn't that bad? But then it absolutely when you're in the weeds, uh, that's definitely not how it feels. But I think what really carried me through was the support structure in the lab, right? The the connections you have with your lab members, your peers and like the your friends that you're hanging out with. Uh, outside outside of lab that kind of say oh no no yes it didn't work but it's going to work out and 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 like uh, rich you know who really did kind of support me through all of that right uh, so rich had this thing he's a, he's extremely extremely um, he can be extremely extremely critical at lab meetings but he he has an amazing sense of when you're completely down he'd be like no 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 you're fine you're doing okay this is going to be fine and and he also like you know um, we kind of like applied, I applied for this private foundational grant to study completely different, something some completely different. Um, he backed me up on that. The grant came through. I uh, sort of switched directions and started. But the good thing is that all the techniques that I had worked, like had gained experience trying to get channel adoption to work, it came to the fore when I basically had this alternative project and it, everything like rapidly came together. And in two years, I had a really nice thesis. And when that happens, Channel adoption and miraculously started working. Maybe I just was like more confident, like I knew what I was doing. Um, I was more excited to come in and try things. So, you know, uh, in the end, everything sort of worked out. But of course, this is absolutely not true, right? Like I didn't know this is what I, I didn't even know if I if I was qualified to to go on to be an academia, you know, to be in academia, right? Like if you're constantly failing and things are not working, it's not really clear that that's the path for you. But then. You know, you, you what that this is why I keep telling students I work with, do the work. Whether you whether your experiment actually works out or not, that's totally fine because I think science kind of always throws a curveball. But I think sort of coming in and doing the due diligence, doing the experiments, trying like systematically changing things when things are not working, systematically changing variables. You're gaining all that skill set when the right question comes along you're going to like hit that at like, you know, in, in, in with full steam and like at a rapid pace, things will come together. And I had this grad, other senior grad student who I used to, you know, who kind of like took, took me on as a mentee. And she always said this, imagine if every experiment you did worked, we'd all have PhD in six months. And it is true, right? Like that, that's not true. So I think it is in, in hindsight, it seems like it was very clear. That's what I wanted to do, but that's never been the case. Even as a postdoc, you know, um, there were ups and downs and the times when I felt like I wanted to be in academia and times where I felt like, oh, no, 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 this is the worst. Um, so I, I, in the end, I do think that this was the right choice for me. Um, but I think there's there are, there are tons of options out there. Like figure out what, you know, if you're a grad student or a postdoc, like if sample things, like see what really like, you know, excites you. If that's the key, academia, great. Uh, if it's not, that's totally fine too. There's just like, you know, where's your oyster? There's so many jobs out there. Um, you'll be fine. For sure. And there's also a great lesson in the story that you want to persevere and change things and try again, but you also want to know, like, maybe it's the 40th construct and enough and I want to switch directions. And yep. and once you switch directions, like you said, things everything could um, come together and, and things might actually work when you didn't expect it to. Yeah, that's definitely true. I think that's, uh, you know, the, that sunk cost thing where you're like, you've already, I've already spent so much time, so I need to like, therefore pursue. I, I think that's the biggest skill I've learned as a scientist, like knowing when to like say, this is not worth pursuing and moving on. And this is true for not just like, 
you know, sort of entire trajectory. So this is also how I te- treat experiments now. So I think one thing that happens as you grow as a scientist or, or just like gain more experience is knowing when an experiment's going poorly to just sort of say, you know what, it's not worth it. Like me staying overnight and trying to make this work is not going to dramatically, like knowing when to like say, this is this is okay, I've, it's fine. And I think that's been like really, really helpful. And for me personally, some of that also just came, I, I was not that person. And for me, some of that changed. I would just kind of like be that person who'd stay in lab, like, you know, stay till like midnight trying to figure out something. And that changed when I had kids. I had I had both my kids as a first step and I no longer could do that. And it gave me that really need, much, much needed, uh, you know, sort of work-life balance. I was enforced on in, in by external factors, but then I realized, oh, what was I doing? This is not, that was not an efficient way of working. And it also allows you to sort of reset and, and come into work in a better frame of mind every day. I think I knew, I, I, I became better organized. I knew how to like get through the day and get what I had to done, you know, in a, in a much more shorter span of time. Uh, and I think that's something that, you know, um, I keep emphasizing to my students, you don't have to work. You don't have to work late into the night. That's like not the expectation at all. Like just become more efficient in how you get your things done. Definitely. Um, and how is the transition going from grad school um, to postdoc? Um, how did you, again, how did you choose um, the lab and research topics? Yeah, so one thing I kind of like, you know, I worked with the Songbird system. I, I think it's a fantastic system. I, you know, I still love, I, I love the Songbird system. But it, to me, it seemed like I really, the, the granularity of questions that I want to ask, I really needed like genetic, I wanted like genetic tools that sort of worked right off the bat, right? Like it's, I, I, I felt like, oh, having to spend three years to get channel adoption to work in birds, that's, that's, that's time I felt like I could have been addressing some, uh, you know, a, a question that really uh, excited me. So I, I, you know, with, with, you know, a lot of support and richest blessings. I started looking for, um, you know, um, mouse labs. Um, at around the same time, while we were trying to decide where I would uh, sort of move to next, my husband actually landed a uh, a job that he really liked minutes from Princeton, uh, right? Um, and so that kind of was like, you know, we were thinking, oh, and if you had to land, if you had, if you were constrained to a place, Princeton's not really a bad place to be constrained to, uh, right? So I started looking for labs around Princeton that, um, you know, um, appealed to me. And I like considered a few different labs, uh, interviewed with a few different people at Princeton. And, you know, a postdoc who was in, uh, in Rich's lab, uh, David Schneider said, have you have you heard of Alana Witten? She's a new PI, but she's amazing. Like, look at her papers from her postdoc. She's she's just started a lab. You should definitely talk to her. Um, and I was like, okay, I'll reach out to her. And I, I feel like, you know, it just, uh, it was a perfect fit. Like, I think I'd love the way Alana thought about science. Um, I, I loved the questions that she was asked. Uh, she was asking the techniques that the lab used, and she just, you know, came across as a super friendly, um, like, really nice person to work with. And it all that was all true, right? Like, uh, you know, I, I uh, look back at my time in Alana's lab like really, really fondly. I had, you know, she's she's a fantastic mentor, and she's a, a you know, um, a great ally. I I, I cannot imagine being ending up in academia without her support uh right so um i think it was the right choice 
um and you know it definitely was you know there were there were that sort of going back and forth right uh, you talk to people and you're like um there are there are students who have bad experiences in new new labs and um you know who sort of discouraged that and there were other people who had great experiences um in in new labs and really encouraged that so you kind of you know i kind of ended up going with my gut feeling i felt like elena was the perfect fit for me and i really liked um that you know uh the lab was new I got, and it, to me it felt like you know i was looking at a young pi who's you know female pi who's just set up a new lab and just had a new like had just had a baby um i knew that this is these are challenges that were going to come up you know uh come across like i would i would face in hopefully in in a short time if i was if that's the path i wanted to take and being you know being be, being able to see the lab grow uh from ground up uh i thought would be a useful experience and that in fact i think is true uh right like i got to see a lot of how the lab uh, lab was put together how the you know how elena handled like bringing in new people how she kind of built the lab culture um and how she went about asking the questions that she did and you know and i i felt like i really learned from that experience so i i do think that you know in the end i mean there wasn't like a light bulb moment where i was like oh this is what i want to do but i just felt like the more i talked to lana the more convinced i was that that was the that was the right lab to be in uh, and i i think that worked out well for for me definitely yeah. could you tell us a bit more about the main question you addressed during your postdoc Yeah so I started in Alana's lab Alana's lab is really interested in like uh, reward behavior more broadly um and so I was interested in uh social behavior and kind of this interest stemmed from my time in Rich's lab we were looking at like a uh, context dependent modulation of song and I was like oh this experience really dramatically can change vocal behavior I want to understand the circuits that drive these behaviors itself right like how are you um, how are you taking into consideration information about another concept you know about another uh, another individual and how that influences your own cho- decisions right and so um armed with this i kind of went to alana's lab I, you know alana's this is another reason that makes alana a great mentor i think she just basically was like yeah nobody does social behavior in the lab but if that's really what you want to do uh, we can we can sort of make this uh, make this happen and so the question that we wanted to probe was the role of various projection populations in the medial prefrontal cortex the region that has you know historically been implicated in in social behaviors um and we really wanted to understand what different groups of neurons are projected to dif- specific downstream regions uh were doing and uh we found that a particular projection to this uh, region called uh, the nucleus accumbens which is part of the ventral striatum a region that's traditionally been implicated in social reward um has this conjunctive social spatial code and i'll break this down for you so we think of these neurons that are not only telling you that there is an animal but they're telling you where an animal is in particular space right and so we think if you think about uh why this might be useful you can think about animals learning to have to associate um sort of social information with with a uh, spatial context right so for example a mouse that encounters a particularly aggressive mouse at one location might want to avoid that location in the future or comes across a potential mate might want to come back uh, and visit that location at a later time so we think that this conjunctive social spatial code that we found uh, in the prefrontal cortex uh essentially allows the animals to learn those associations and in fact when we manipulated activity of these uh neurons in a spatially specific manner we could either um you know uh increase the association preference for that uh, particular location by a- increasing the activity of these neurons or we could basically uh you know 
at, make the animal uh, forget that location or, or not even make that association, not forget, uh, not even make that as, uh, uh, that association, right? Yeah. So if we inhibit the neurons, animals basically acted as though they never saw a mouse in that location. Uh, so we think that this basically is a substrate for learning reward uh, location associations. So although we focus primarily on social behavior, you could totally imagine how the same, a similar, a similar mechanism could be employed to like learn food location associations, for instance. So maybe learning about a tree that has, uh, you know, delicious berries or things like that. Uh, so that was the 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 primary project that I worked on as a postdoctoral fellow, and was really. Um, exciting to like navigate, uh, you know, uh, the various aspects of the project that we needed to get in order to make the project successful, uh, right? For example, like Ilana's lab, no one was imaging in Ilana's lab before I started, right? So it was fun to get a, get that established and, and going. And and in, on the other side of things, I had never done an um, opto experiment in in mouse in mice before, and so like Ilana's lab was. It, they had a, it was kind of amazing because I had done this in birds and I, you know, have struggled and like banged my head against the wall to get this working. And then the mouse, the very first experiment I try is like, bam. Um, right. So it's, it was, uh, you know, it was exciting to kind of see, uh, be able to move model systems and like learn new techniques, learn different kinds of, you know, how to run different kinds of animal behavior, understand the results, learning that mouse behavior is very noisy. Uh, and and not not like uh, songbird behavior. So this there's definitely like a, a a learning curve to it, and so it was really fun. That is very interesting. Uh, but like you mentioned, moving from flies to um, songbirds to mice, was that uh, was that a challenge, or were there more positives that you took from these transitions? No, I think there's a lot of, I mean, it definitely, there's a bit of a learning curve, right? Like, so I never worked with vertebrates, vertebrate species while I started in, in grad school. Uh, so even just like catching a songbird, right? Like, that's like, I was like, wait a minute, how do you do that? Like, you know, uh, and so um, this. That was, so how do you that, actually that was, do that? <laughs> you, it's interesting. Zebra finches are pretty easy and they keep them in these like 20 by, I don't know, like, 20 by 30 inch cages maybe and so you like they and and zebra, <laughs> zebra finches are actually kind of like not the smartest birds uh, around um, so if you they have these very fixed patterns in which they'll fly uh, so you literally put your hand in and catch one um, and you can you get good enough that you can catch them midair by the end of your PhD like if you're doing wow. it day in and day out um, so there is sort of like you know interest so just sort of it's simple challenges like learning how to handle the animal that you have to work with. But then there are also sort of more technical challenges, right? Like in terms of how do you get a tool that doesn't work in this system uh, to work in another system or, or things like that. But the thing that it really helped, I thought was a big advantage is that it makes you appreciate and like be able to converse with a much wider range of scientists, right? Like I've, I, I mean, I've been in the fly world. I know what the, the, um, advantages and disadvantages are. It forced me to like read that literature. And, and the nice thing about that is that you can take ideas that seem very specific. So there's a lot of like, there's a, I mean, I, I, this is something my, my other, other of, you know, of your like listeners might be familiar with. I feel like scientific communities have like these smaller insular groups, right? Things that are like the norm in one group uh, is not 
in, in another group and sort of having worked in diverse organisms, I'm able to take, oh, this technique or this analysis that's like so common in the songbird system. Now I'm going to apply it in, in like the mouse or like vice versa, right? Like, so um, taking something that's like super common, like general knowledge in the mouse and being, and now that it has really come to the, for me, it's a super helpful because I have collaborations here where we're working with unusual model systems. So I have a, a student who's co-mentored with Larry Young and has, you know, is working on the Prairie Bowl. And I have a collaboration with Aubrey Kelly um, in the psychology department and her lab works with the spiny mice and the gerbils. Uh, and having, you know, previously done this transition between model systems, it now I find it easier to troubleshoot when I have to take a technique that works in mouse and transfer it to some of these other systems. I think that's been the biggest sort of advantage because I've thought of these questions before. I know what can work and what where things can break down. And so now I feel like I'm more streamlined and better prepared when I have to like adapt it to a different system. Um, it also makes you more appreciative, I think, of the advantages of compar comparative physiology. Like, you know, the, you know, being able to like not see just one phenomenon in one species, but being able to see that across species, uh, it really makes you, you know, appreciate these other unusual model systems more, I think. For sure. It's also really nice to be able to bring these fresh perspectives, like you mentioned, coming from a different insular group. Um, that That's really nice. Um, and uh, so now you have started your own lab in Emory University in Jan 2020. How was that transition uh, to leading your own lab, especially during the onset of a global pandemic? Um, and what are the scientific questions that your lab addresses now? Yeah, no, it's been a, it's it's been super exciting. It's definitely like not the most ideal time to start a new lab. Uh, so hopefully nobody will have to do this, right? Like I hope the next pandemic is not for another hundred years, and nobody will have to start like a anything new. Uh, I, I it was very difficult, but I think that knowing that not just me. Uh, you know, uh, we're all going through something really difficult, right? Like, and so me not having my 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 camera not coming in on time. It just everything had. There's there's this larger perspective that helped me feel like okay, I, it's not just me, right? Everybody's sort of going through uh, a, a really difficult time. So I, I do think that starting a lab during a pandemic was hard, but that was true for everyone. Um, I think the biggest joy in starting a lab was the the ability to sort of work with young people who are coming in with like a ton of excitement, a ton of like energy, really like, you know, uh, exciting questions that they want to go after and, and, and sort of seeing the, you know, building blocks fall into place that allows us to answer a question. So we're broadly interested in social behaviors. There are a few different uh, sort of lines of question that we're going after. Uh, so we're really interested in continuing sort of the vein of work that I saw in Alana's lab. We're really interested in um, looking at social behavior in, in a reward context. So we have a project where we're looking at how social and non-social reward representations compare uh, across various reward centers in the brain. Um, and in, on the other hand, we're also really interested in, you know, uh, sort of social decision making. So you're you come across a conspecific. How do you sort of decide what to do next? How do you like encode information about the identity of the conspecific? Once you've done that, how do you use that to guide your subsequent behavioral decisions? How do you decide to approach or avoid? And so we're we're look, working on a few different subcortical structures um, and, and and their role in, in driving these uh, approach approach avoidance behaviors. So um, that's broadly another line of questions that we're really uh, sort of excited uh, about and we're going after. And 
the we use a wide range of tools uh you know things that i kind of picked up as a grad student picked up as a first start but also just sort of you know bringing in students from you know with diverse expertise and allowing them the the space to you know uh pursue what they're most excited about uh so it's that's been the the most fun uh fun to see um and i think that the the joy of, of being a, a pi is that you get to see uh see all of the wins and you 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 get to see this more bigger picture view like sometimes when you're doing experiments and say one cohort of my like you you set up 20 surgeries and that's like you know you spent a lot of time setting up that surgeries and that didn't work um you and you're the first doctor when you're the grad student that's devastating right but as a pi you're basically able to look take a bigger picture view and say no 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 yes that didn't work but look at all the other things you've been managed to to succeed in so i think like that is that's really helpful and i now can see how you know um because you're a little bit removed from some of these day to day uh sort of uh difficulties which i think uh so there is that's the that's the silver lining so if any of you are a first doc or you know who's thinking about academia and you're like don't worry about all of these you know the, the lows as a pi you get to there are lows right like absolutely as a pi when a grant get, grant grant gets rejected or like even even projects don't work like you know uh but you you get to also see the much bigger picture view and see how someone um you know uh someone is growing as a scientist and all of that makes up for for the bad days so i think that's the the biggest biggest uh joy of being a, a, a pi i think for sure um and a common thread in all the different phases of your uh trajectory seems to be the amazing mentorship uh that you've gotten how has that influenced um the way you see um you mentor your students in your lab um and is there any advice that you've received from a mentor that's stuck with you that you would like to pass on to our listeners Yeah, absolutely. I think I I've, I've been really lucky that I've had uh, amazing mentors in every stage of my uh like sort of scientific career. I feel like if that didn't happen, I definitely would not be where I am. There are like a few things that really stand out, right? Like you know, I remember when when we were when I was in grad school, um you know, um it was we were I was still trying to get standard option to work. was maybe like seven it had taken me a while to get everything prepped up like going the animals like you know and then uh, animals been like you know is is i'm working with with the animal and it you know finally for the first time i turned on the light and there was this response right i just kind of like was so excited and i called uh, called rich i think by the time i called rich it was maybe like a 10 or 11 Wow. He was like super worried. He was like, "Are you fine? Are you? Are, are, are you hurt? Like, you know?" And he was like, "I was like, no, no, no. I think it's working. You should, you should like, you should come here." Um, and he was like, "On my way." And there he was, like, right. So between like eleven thirty and two or three at night, we just sat and like we recorded units and we saw saw responses and in and and that was like incredible, right? Like I thought. that was that that was i think was the turning point in me deciding to like stick to academia because i think that for that minute like no one else except me and rich knew that this was working and 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 the fact that you know a mentor decided to partake in that like moment of success 
uh, I think that was so validating. And I think I, I try to do that for my students, right? Like I think like no success is trivial. So even if like, you know, if it's like you, you got like a, a, a package to install and that you got that working, that's a big success, right? Because I think like, I, you know, I learned from that experience that like, you know, when you, when you really enjoy in the success of your students, it's so validating from for your students. It was for me, right? Like Rich showing up and and saying this is this is amazing. This is the best thing ever. Uh, was was like um, such a um, you know key factor in how how I felt about science. And I think that that was you know that's one thing I, I I've really learned. And Rich is I also learned from Rich to be like super rigorous, uh, really you know um, sort of like be play your own devil's advocate like always question your teacher like you know check three times four times five times like you know come up with alternative situations um and 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 things like that and that's something that i also hope that you know i've i've been i'll be able to pass on to my uh, students and, and same thing with alana she's like you know uh, she's an incredibly supportive mentor uh right like i i remember going to alana's lab like a few months after i started in the lab and telling her you know um I was, I'm expecting a baby uh, in a few months. And the only thing Alana said was, how can I help you? Right. And that's, that was exactly the attitude she sort of maintained throughout my postdoc. She was every time I kind of like had, uh, you know, challenges or uh, any personal challenges. Um, Alana was there. I had my back, made sure I had the support I needed to succeed. Uh, you know, and I think that there was a, that was a, uh, you know, uh, again, like without that support, I don't, I don't feel like I could have made it out of academia. I made it out to be in academia, right? Like, so uh, I would have been someone who would have said, I'd take another job, which is like, you know, will, will allow me to, you know, take care of it. So that was not, that is not what she did. She basically had my back and, and, and also just like, you know, uh, learn that you can be a really, really critical and, and fantastic and, and rigorous scientist and be really, a kind and 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 you know a supportive uh, mentor at the same time, and that that I think I got from Ilana, and that's definitely what I hope to sort of be able to pass on to my own students. Uh, I also kind of like you know um, she told me something that I think has for me has been like really uh, transformational. Uh, like you know outsource whatever uh, you you. You know, your time is the most important thing. Everything else is like fine. So find if you need like someone to help clean your house, outsource it. Like if someone can do laundry and that helps you outsource it. Um, and, and, you know, and I think that's kind of something that we like I've really like internalized and I feel I live by uh, because if if I find someone and I can get someone to do my laundry, that's like half an hour or an hour. I can instead, you know, either be spending with my family and doing meaningful stuff or like I can be thinking about science. Right. So it's you don't have to do it all you don't have to be the person who make, make, makes the best meal and like you know uh, your elaborate meals and like and you know have to have a career and things like that. it's okay to compromise and it's like okay to sort of give you know find like take help and get help when you need it and i think that's that's something i have really um sort of um taken to heart and i think it has really dramatically changed how i think about uh think about like my career so for sure, that's that's so beautiful to hear, and also your eleven p.m. channel adoption works in birds sounds like the perfect eureka story. <laughs> Not many people <laughs> will have an easy answer to. Was there one day where you had 
the, the most memorable day in lab and seems like you definitely do. Um, yeah, I think that pants down will probably be like the yeah, I, it was it was amazing, right? Like because it hadn't hadn't maybe because it also built up to that because it hadn't worked for almost 3 years. Uh when it eventually worked, it just felt like uh such a big such a big deal. Um and and I think just being able to like share that with like others in the lab and like being able to like, you know, uh, that that was I I remember that day. I remember like what I did exactly that day, right? Like I stayed in lab till like, you know, um I think nine in the morning and then went back, slept and came back and, and you know, suddenly it felt like something had changed, right? It, 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 it's often not the case. I think that was a, that I haven't like had a, such an experience. Everything else has been sort of more, you know, you, you, you do the work and I, and even in, the, in that particular case, I think it was in some way serendipity, right? I had like let that mouse, I, mean, I had forgotten about that bird. I had injected like, you know, uh, the, that animal like, three months ago and I just had had not gotten to the animal before and it turned out that was the key variable that in birds you have to just wait really really long uh, for viruses to express and who you know that it didn't seem like that would be the solution but that 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 overnight like there was this massive like change right okay, now we knew what we had to do to get get it to express in really high high amounts right uh, we just had to wait um, and so yeah in that in that particular case that is true but that, that said I don't think you know that's that's the normal expectation in science. I think most times it's more boring and like um, less sort of. Oh my God! Now Eureka solved this problem, <laughs> right, right? right? Like no. yes, that is yeah, important but, for the listeners to know. <laughs> right. No, exactly. Yeah, no, but was but, was good. Yeah. Uh, but it has been amazing to to capture the various highlights in in all the the different phases of your trajectory. But like you also alluded to, I'm sure there were a lot of hurdles and challenges on the way. Um, so what what would you say was the was the most challenging thing that happened to you uh, during your career, and how did you how did you overcome that and bounce back? Yeah, I mean, uh, so. <laughs> I mean, there definitely are, you know, everything that's like experiments not working, things like that, 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 that was just common, right? Like, I, I mean, all of that is just, the, the thing that I found the hardest, uh, so my husband had, like, I had I had my, uh, both my kids, my youngest one was maybe eight months old. Uh, my ha- husband got this amazing job opportunity uh, in Seattle, and he felt like it was a transformational for his career, and it, he really wanted to take that opportunity um and i he had made a ton of accommodations for my career like moved to places moved to like given up jobs to so that i can pursue what i wanted and i thought it was totally fair that he should like try and do something that was you know uh really good for him um and so we decided as a family that we would you know we will make we would somehow make this work uh which meant that for a year he was in seattle um you know working uh you know with his new like job and i was in princeton uh with my kids and an epileptic dog trying to finish my postdoc and being on the job market um right that felt like that was the hardest thing i've ever done like it just was like it you know both you know trying to get we you know gotten the paper out but i was still doing other experiments i just had a new baby um, you know, I was like sleep deprived. I was applying to jobs and 
you know just like trying to come in and do things um that's and and the thing that really got me through was the community of people right like um ilana in lab basically you know helped me you know hire a tech who could help me out um and like sort of help me she actually put me in touch with a, a housekeeper uh you know who had who had worked with her as a, when when ilana was a child right like she, so she came and like you know i i and that that was also when she said you have to outsource you have to like you know prioritize your well-being um and and my my family and friends right like my my parents flew from india to come and help out with the kids for a couple months um my in-laws flew out to help me out for a couple months my sister's family lived like you know uh, an hour away from us or like a th- 30 minutes from us and she stepped in a lot my friends stepped in a lot uh you know our neighbors stepped in to like give me you know have, give me meals in the evening and i took all the help i could right like and i think there's no shame in that like i think you know sort of being able to like you know, and that was the, the hardest thing i kind of was like oh i i need this help and i'm going to ask for it uh right and that's sometimes i i particularly as women i think we don't do we like we'll take on more we'll take on more i can do this i can do this and recognizing that we have a breaking point and that's not going to be um you know uh, a a viable option that i could realize and like saying no 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 i need help and i'm going to take all this help that i can i think that was the that's what got me through that period i think um and and of course or could only have done it with that community that that support network right and to think and i mean this is true for everybody i think cultivating that community like you know spending time and like com- committing to ha- having that like set of people who can like you know catch you when things don't uh things are not like optimal and like you know um and and making it work is, is the, i think that's the that's the key um that's a really great lesson like it for sure takes a village not only to raise a child but also to 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 do everything else to like finish the paper get out of the job market and relying asking for help and relying on the support structure is exactly um, absolutely yeah, I think critical ask for help. De- definitely ask for help like i think that's that's something i really just had to like you know uh learn uh learn to do better uh and so now i i i tell tell my students the same thing like it's okay like you know you don't have to reinvent the wheel i think like being independent trying things and like figuring it out uh on your own is is a useful practice but like also knowing when to like say oh i've done my best and now i think i need someone else to take a look or like you know or have someone kind of step in and and you know just to give you a break i think that's it's it's totally totally like the the way to go uh would you say any of your challenges but also related to your identity as a as a woman in your science or uh, on or just on a more broader level um what are the kind of changes you would wish to see in academia absolutely i mean i think i mean i was a first up uh, at a very interesting time right like it was the uh time where it seemed like anti immigrant sentiment was pretty high i mean i was I was in New Jersey where there's a big Indian community but I've also definitely faced instances of racism uh right like and so uh that always kind of weighed on my mind there aren't also I mean how often do you come across an Indian woman PI right like so um you know I I I definitely do I think representation matters is such a big thing because I I think that can I can attest to that like being able to see people who have kind of taken the same trajectory coming in from a, a different country or like seeing them become PIs and like doing that's possible like that door is like it's not it's not reserved for someone I think it's it's absolutely helpful but that that's also where I think you know seeing amazing kick ass women PIs at Princeton like was you know was really fantastic like you know Elana like Mala Anagret Faulkner started at this around that time like 
you know, um, Kate Pena, like Lindsay McBride, like it's just, you know, seeing that they all are like coming in and like have, they had young families and they're able to do this. I think that was definitely like, you know, helped boost my confidence that I could do it. Um, I could do it too. And there had definitely have been episodes that there was this one incident where, uh, you know, we were interviewing me and another, uh, uh, you know, gra- postdoc from Princeton. We both were interviewing um, at at Yale, and this other male postdoc who had applied for the same job, uh, you know, walked up to me and told me, "Oh, I heard they're only planning to recruit women. Maybe that's why you got an interview." And I think that sort of stuff, like, you know, casual sexism, sort of still really exists. Uh, and so, you know, I, at that moment, I was like really stumped. I like I didn't know what to say. I was like, I felt very belittled. I kind of felt like, oh, is this truly why? But, you know, I, I have to like I had to like take a minute to reflect. I, I mean, I've had bad uh, instances uh, during my interviews, like where you know, this sort of like, you know, I feel like those were there were questions that were asked that you would definitely would not ask a ask a male PI like I was asked I, I often like when I give my give my talks I used to use this picture of my um, kids to motivate why social interactions are important and this this PI uh, this other PI walked up to me and asked me are you done having kids after during my one-on-one interviews and I was like uh, you know that was weird but also like you know just definitely the end post to me that you know um casual sexism is still rampant in academia and uh and it's also true you know um about racism just even how we talk about like uh you know who we are recruiting like diversity hires and things like that what does that mean how does the, what does that mean to like the person who's being recruited i think really sort of being mindful of the language that we use uh, around this process and like you know um acknowledging it head on and 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 i think the key is the key to all of this is like committing to really, really, uh, truly becoming diverse, right? Like, you know, making sure that you're, you know, you're going through with what you what you want. And I, and I think once you actually have to engage with colleagues on a regular basis who are not like you, I think you're you're forced to sort of introspect and like be more careful. Um, and more not careful mindful mindful of like what you're saying and your actions and how that affects others um so that's definitely definitely true i do think all of this is changing though i mean i think i I really take heart in that i know that you know none of this has happened with younger pis right like no none of the younger pis i've interviewed with or uh, you know so there definitely is you know there is a change and it's coming it's slow like it's true with any other field and i don't think this is true just for uh, academia i think we are in a time of reckoning and a lot of things about society is changing and people are more open and are willing to talk about like their experiences and like you know and others are willing to hear and listen to it and learn from it so i i do think um yeah I, i'm an optimist i think you know i i i think we're in a world that's we're better off than even though it doesn't seem like it is Right, the country is really polarized, but I do think as a as a whole, we are we are better off than we than we were. Uh, people are more mindful. People are more careful uh, about what they say and and their actions and things like that. So I, I don't know. I I I do. It it abs. I mean, anybody who says no, that's not like their identity. It doesn't does not affect who they are. Is is probably just sort of like not being truthful, right? Like it, it shapes everything. It, it, it is everything, right? Like uh, I, I am a byproduct of my, my, my 
upbringing and my everything right like my sex and my race and everything so it's it's it is who i am and so it influences everything about like um about my life so yeah definitely definitely thanks so much for sharing that and i mean being a trailblazer trailblazer definitely comes with its challenges and again like you said the diversity is important because that's when we everyone brings their own perspective and um just academia or the world becomes a better place um okay finally um we would like to end on a lighter note and uh we would like to get to know about malavika outside the lab a little bit so what are some of your favorite hobbies or activities outside or what do you do to feel more relaxed and refreshed yeah i love dabbling in art um i mean i just kind of like to draw like to sketch i like to do a little bit of painting uh do a little bit of that um i've also gotten recently more and more into gardening um so <laughs> i'm i'm really into my vegetable garden uh, particularly in the spring and the summer i find that like uh you know uh super relaxing it, it's, it's like you know you you have to kind of be it you can you can you can do a lot of like stuff like, while gardening you can think about things and it like you're out out in fresh air and you're doing something else um i also have to uh young kids so a considerable amount of time uh that i spend outside of lab basically just kind of like is to is to spend time with them um you know we do a, uh, we do we love going on hikes uh so that's something that we do quite a bit um we also just you know um there's a lot of chalk painting involved uh like you know um legos um that's that's a you know i have a, a lego structure back in my office uh so a lot of do a lot of lego building uh so and i and we have a dog and so uh he's a crazy crazy uh labradoodle who needs a lot of attention so that's pretty much like uh what i do outside i used to be i used to be an avid reader i don't have um as much time to do that uh now i've i've i thought i would never be this person but i've switched to like audiobooks exclusively um and that's that's another thing that i do to like sort of decompress and you know if i want to do something else um yeah um is there a favorite um book that's been transformational <laughs> um i mean i don't know feel transformational like i i i don't uh i i read mostly like um <laughs> sort of like uh science fiction and like uh so mostly for fun and joy not mostly not relaxing, like relaxing yeah, and yeah. i i right? love terry pratchett books uh like that's definitely like my um you know sort of my favorite genre um and so um yeah i kind of like want things that like help me take my mind off like you know research i i definitely do think sort of having periods when you're not thinking about science or like refreshing and recharging i find that super helpful it kind of helps me come back and and be more focused um absolutely thank you so much malavika for taking the time out and for sharing your inspiring story with us there there were so many amazing um lessons and and takeaways for us and for our listeners uh it's been such a pleasure chatting with you Thank you so much Meenakshi for having me over and it's been a really fun time uh talking to you and being able to share my experiences